I, I don't. He's not disappearing. So. No. No. Welcome back to the Der Show. Today we're going to do something rather unusual. Under the title is uh, SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States, destroying the nation. We're actually going to talk about the entire term of the Supreme Court this year and trying to summarize it. Some people think it's the most important term in recent years. People on the extreme right are very happy with it because so many things they wanted were uh, achieved. People on the left think it's one of the worst terms ever. My former colleague, Lawrence Tribe, says this is the first time in American history that people went to sleep at night with fewer rights than they woke up in the morning. He was dead wrong. It happens all the time. And insensitive, of course, to African-Americans who often woke up with fewer rights or Native Americans or Japanese Americans who were detained in, 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 in camps or um, mentally ill Americans who were sterilized. This was not among even the top 10 or 15 uh, worst uh, uh, years of, of the Supreme Court or best years of the Supreme Court. What's interesting, it is the most understood year of the Supreme Court in history. And I'll try to explain why it's been so uh, badly misunderstood. Um, most media, most commentators, most pundits, most law professors, just look at the superficial aspects of the Supreme Court decisions. Oh, abortions are harder to get. Yeah, but yeah, guns are easy to get. Yeah, yeah, religion seems to have been uh, uh, preferred. Yeah, yeah, the environment was hurt. All of those things. I'm going to go over the top 10 uh, Supreme Court decisions. First, let me tell you what I think they were. And then I'm going to tell you something that will surprise you about what many of these decisions have in common. Well, number one, certainly in terms of public interest, is the Dobbs decision un under which um, states now can decide uh, whether or not women can have abortions and at what stage. Uh, the second most important decision involved New York State gun laws. Probably the third involved climate uh, restrictions on the EPA's ability to control the climate. Uh, the next three involved a religion, three cases involving religion. Coach Kennedy, the guy who was praying at half court, uh, Maine schools uh, could not discriminate against religious schools if they pay for certain aspects of private schools. And um, a flag, a Christian flag could not be uh, turned down uh, when other flags are allowed. So that's four, five, and six. Um, then we have uh, two COVID cases. Those are seven and eight. Um, going the opposite uh, directions in some ways. And then um, a case, an important case involving Native American reservations and a very important criminal case, which has been given very little attention, which may have a big impact on January 6th and the people who are charged with January 6th crimes, uh, a case that basically expands the notion of the criminal intent required when the government has approved certain action previously and then says no. So that's the, that's the big 10. And what do so many of them have in common? So many of them have in common that they didn't really decide what can be done or what can't be done. The decisions were not about what. The decisions were about who. The decisions were about who gets to decide, not whether you can have abortions or not, but the state uh, decides now instead of the federal courts decide about abortion, guns, um, uh, 
the states were deprived of the power to um, uh, deny uh, carry handgun permits under certain circumstances. Again, who decides? The climate one was the most important one. It was very little about, about climate. It was about whether the EPA um, has the authority from Congress to make certain regulations about um, the environment. The Supreme Court had no problems if Congress made those regulations, they would be upheld. It was just that the wrong body made uh, those regulations. I think the same thing was true about COVID, the two COVID cases, one saying that you could not compel people in the workplace uh, under various administrative rules to get vaccines, but you could compel people who work for federal health agencies to do it. Those were all about who gets to decide. Again, Congress could overrule any of these decisions if they just decide. Uh, so so that, that's very important. Uh, other cases, um, Native American uh, case, that involved whether or not um, the United States government could try non-Natives who commit crimes against Natives on American reservations. Again, who gets the, who gets the, the power and uh, the intent issue, again, said Congress is, was unclear. And if Congress wants to pass uh, clear statutes, they can, they can do so. So this is such an important point, so neglected by the media. The media looks for headlines. The media looks for splash. Um, cable television tries to sell soap. And so what they do is focus on the superficial aspects of the case where you can't understand the Supreme Court of the United States and let you, you get below the surface and, and ask yourselves, uh, uh, what is the key precedential value of these decisions? And the key precedential value, the value that really impacts um, long-term is who gets to make these decisions. And in a democracy, nothing could be more important. You know, the framers of our constitution did not make it easy for legislation or executive actions to be taken, unlike in, in Great Britain or Israel or France or Italy or other countries that have parliamentary uh, democracies. Parliament is supreme. There's no separation of powers. There's no division of authority. There's no checks and balances. Parliament wants to do it. They can do it. Uh, there's not even judicial review in most, in most countries. Uh, the parliament makes the decisions and courts can't overrule it. Uh, the framers of the United States Constitution, based on work by a great philosopher named Montesquieu, uh, borrowed and, and created this cumbersome mechanism for making decisions, creating a bicameral legislature, two houses, one of which was to be popularly elected, the other not. Senate was supposed to have uh, two senators from each state uh, appointed by the states themselves, the legislatures, not the people. And the, the, the Senate was supposed to be a check on the House of Representatives. Remember, the word democracy was never mentioned in a positive sense by the framers of our constitution. They saw democracy at work in some parts of the world, particularly in France, which was obviously moving toward a, a deadly revolution. And the last thing most uh, American founders wanted was democracy. Thomas Paine wanted democracy, but he was a an outsider and a minority person. Maybe Jefferson inclined uh, towards some concept of democracy, certainly not Hamilton, Washington. And so um, we created this system and the system requires a determination of who gets to decide, particularly when you impose 
on the uh, separation of powers and checks and balances, which are federal, when you impose on that, uh, uh, which, which, are, which are governmental, United States government, when you impose on that the federalist system, which again divides power, this time between the states and the federal government. So you have essentially a six-part division, legislative, executive, judicial, divided by or multiplied by two, which gives you six. And, and so the Supreme Court is essentially the umpire. It, it basically directs traffic. It says essentially, look, abortions, okay, you, you the states, you do that. Guns, no, no, no. Uh, the, the federal government does that through the Second Amendment. Uh, climate control, that's a legislative matter, uh, and you can't give it to the executive unless you give it to them explicitly. Otherwise, we're going to say that the EPA uh, and other administrative agencies don't have the, the power. Um, not all the decisions can be uh, analyzed in terms of who. The religion decisions, for example, the Supreme Court is clearly, without a doubt, moving uh, against the Establishment Clause and in favor of the Free Exercise Clause. That's, again, remember that the framers of the Constitution, uh, who were not particularly good draftsmen, they were brilliant, brilliant people. But in terms of draftsmanship, I B minus with great inflation, maybe, maybe B, but no better than that. I mean, if you look at so many of the amendments, uh, they're, they're subject to multiple interpretations. I have a cartoon in my house, which has the framers standing around saying, why don't we have some fun and make the constitutional provisions a little wishy-washy? Well, they certainly succeeded in, in, in doing that. The Second Amendment is a disaster of framing. The Fourth Amendment is very, very unclear about framing. And the First Amendment, the one we're going to talk about now, is contradictory. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. That seems to suggest that religion really can't play a a major role in the governance of the United States. And that was certainly Jefferson's view. He wrote that into the Virginia Constitution as well and was very strongly against any establishment. Uh, he was ferociously anti-Catholic and particularly anti-Jesuit and anti-Vatican. He and Adams had a correspondence in which they both wished that the First Amendment uh, permitted keeping Jesuits out of the United States. In Massachusetts, it was a crime to uh, harbor a Jesuit, very strongly anti-Catholic views and very strong views against government and religion merging the way the Catholic Church had for years made them merge. I mean, obviously, uh, every European country until Britain started the Reformation was a Catholic country in which the head of government was subordinate to the head of the Catholic Church. The United States wanted no part of that. And so the first words of the First Amendment were Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. And it goes follows by, or, you know, abridging the free exercise thereof. Uh, and so you have a conflict. What if um, the free exercise of religion constitutes an establishment? I mean, my favorite example is always evangelical Christianity, which is very distinguishable from, for example, Judaism. In Judaism, nobody tries to convert anybody to be a Jew. In fact, it's, it's, it's not easy to convert to be Jewish. It is not a part of the Jewish religion to make Christians uh, become Jewish. 
it is very much a part of uh, evangelical Christianity to convert uh, people to uh, Jesus and to convert people to Christianity. Um, um, my mother, um, uh, the daughter of immigrants, went to a public school in Brooklyn, New York, and her very Irish Catholic uh, school teacher tried desperately to convert the Jewish uh, kids. My wife went to a private school in Charleston, South Carolina, and her best friends, out of absolute love, absolute love, pleaded with her to become a Christian so she won't burn in hell because they wanted to spend eternity with her in heaven. And of course, if you're not Christian, you're not going to heaven. So evangelical Christians have as part of their goal the establishment of religion and, and making religion part of governance and making people uh, convert to uh, their brand of Christianity. And the Constitution seems to say no to that. So you get these three decisions which clearly favor free exercise over establishment. Uh, the worst decision, in my view, is uh, Coach Kennedy decision, even though it was extremely, extremely popular. Here you have an assistant coach who makes decisions about whether to put players in or not put them in, whether to cut them from the team or not cut them from the team. He gets on his knees uh, right after the game and prays to Jesus, a, a, a Christian prayer, and encourages students to come and pray with him. Uh, take somebody who comes from an agnostic home or an atheist home or a Buddhist home or a Jewish home and wants to play football. Uh, is he going to really or she have the courage to stay away and say, no, 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 this, this, it's, not, it's not for me? Or as I've written and said before on the show, what if Coach Kennedy weren't a Christian? What if he were a Muslim uh, and uh, went to the middle of the field and yelled out, uh, you know, Allahu Akbar, please join me in praying to uh, the only God of the universe, uh, Allah. Would the school have allowed him to do it? Would the Supreme Court have written the same decision it wrote, or is it a decision that really establishes mainstream Christianity as the only people who can pray at halftime in the game? Uh, people say, oh, who's hurt by a little prayer? Well, you know, if you're not a praying person or not somebody who believes in the particular prayer and you feel compelled to join, you can be uh, psychologically hurt. Is it a terrible burden? Maybe not, but it's the hurt that the First Amendment was designed to protect you from. And so, you know, those decisions were not as much who but what. But even that decision had to do with whether the school board can, whether the Constitution prevails over the school board. Um, so you always have to look at the who in addition to the, in addition to the what. Um, the who determines the what in many instances. Um, for example, the who, the state can decide whether or not to permit abortion, but many states will decide not to permit abortion. So the who, the states, will change the rights of individuals if the states were not permitted to do it. And if it all grew out of a constitutional right, one not enumerated of the Constitution, but one articulated in Roe versus Wade, and before that in Griswold versus Connecticut, and a range of other cases involving the right of personal privacy regarding um, um, procreational issues. If the Supreme Court hadn't decided that, then many more people would be able to get abortion. So the who in that case determines the what. And that, that's going to be true in all these cases. The, the who in the um, cases involving administrative agencies determine the what, because um, uh, 
the who is Congress, and Congress may not be able to pass climate legislation or legislation involving COVID. There may not be a, a, the kind of majority, supermajority, often with the filibuster, subject to a presidential veto. And so it's up to administrative agencies. And when the Supreme Court says, uh-uh, Congress hasn't authorized explicitly the administrative agencies to give you that uh, power, um, you know, then it, it affects the what. Uh, all I'm really asking you all to do is when you read about Supreme Court decisions, just go below the surface. Don't only ask the question, what did the Supreme Court decide? Look hard, think about the separation of powers, checks and balances, and ask the question, did the Supreme Court make a decision that you agree with or disagree with, allocating fundamental powers among the three branches of government? You know, when you read the whole Constitution from beginning to end, before we get to the Bill of Rights, it's an interesting Constitution. It's a structural Constitution. It contains very few rights. It contains a right against the Bill of Attainder, because that goes back to England and ex post facto laws. But for example, it doesn't protect against double jeopardy. You need the Bill of Rights for that. Uh, nor does it protect against compelled incrimination. Uh, you need a Bill of Rights for that. So the Constitution itself is largely structural. Indeed, Bill of Attainders and ex post facto can also be understood to be structural because the Bill of Attainder says Congress can't criminalize people, can't try people and put them in jail. Only the courts can. So even if you consider the two rights fundamentally listed in the Constitution, they're both structural rights as well. I know this may sound a little uh, esoteric and a little uh, law schooly, but I have to tell you, even in law schools, they don't teach this stuff. Uh, you know, law schools have become propaganda mills in, in some instances. I would hate uh, any of my students, I taught 10,000 of them, to be taking constitutional law uh, today in many of the law schools in the country. All, all you're going to get is radical professors railing, railing against um, uh, Roe versus Wade, railing against guns, railing against climate decisions. You're not going to get the kind of analysis that I've just given you here, uh, which is not a complicated analysis. It just adds a dimension to um, other dimensions that teachers can give. But remember, a lot of professors today in law schools and in colleges are not interested in educating. They're not interested in teaching you how to think. They're interested in propagandizing you as to what to think. And if you think the wrong way, you will be downgraded, much the way I've been downgraded on Martha's Vineyard among old friends for thinking the wrong way about uh, impeachment and about other matters relating to the most despised man in the history of Martha's Vineyard. I have to tell you, Donald Trump is more despised on Martha's Vineyard than King George ever was in the 1790s, probably more so than Adolf Hitler in the 1930s and, and, and 40s and uh, uh, others as well throughout history. I mean, my God, the, the animosity, the anger, not only directed against him, but directed against me and others for defending his constitutional rights. Um, I wonder what they would have done if John Adams had come to Martha's Vineyard after defending uh, the rights of the young men charged with the Boston massacre. Uh, I suspect he probably would have been treated similarly. But when you take the long view, when you look at the Constitution and you look at what it's designed to protect, it's not designed to give you immediate gratification at the moment. It's not designed to 
tell you who should be elected president. It's all about the mechanisms of decision making. It's all about who gets to decide in a complex, multifaceted division of power, federalist society. Don't expect easy answers. You're not going to get them from the Constitution and you're not going to get them from the good Supreme Court. Uh, now, is this Supreme Court a good Supreme Court? Does it allow uh, partisan and uh, ideological views to influence its decisions even about the how? Well, I divide it into partisan and ideological. I do not think the Supreme Court has been guilty, particularly of partisan decisions. It's ruled against Donald Trump on quite a number of occasions. Uh, and it's ruled against the Republican Party, even though the Republicans uh, have nominated more justices than the Democrats on the court. So I think it's a bum rap to call the Supreme Court today a partisan institution. It was a very partisan institution under Bush versus Gore. There, that decision was determined by which party the justices wanted to win. And they were able to finagle and able to figure out and uh, do this about the Equal Protection Clause and this about the article this and this about articles. But at bottom, you had five justices who wanted George Bush to be elected president and four justices who wanted uh, Gore to be elected president. It's as simple as that. Uh, that was not a decision about who decides. That was a decision about who should be president. But for the most part, this Supreme Court and Supreme Court since Bush versus Gore have not been partisan. What they have been is ideological. That is, there was a majority of the Supreme Court who wanted to overrule Roe versus Wade, and so they did so because they can, because they can. Um, they might just as well have announced it on the day that Justice Barrett was appointed to the Supreme Court. Yay, we have enough votes now to overrule Roe versus Bush. We're not even wait for the right decision, the right case to come up. We're just going to overrule it. Essentially, that's what they did. So uh, you do get some cases where uh, the, 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 the who really is about the why and, and, and the what. The what determines the who in that case. There's nothing especially structural about why the states, rather than the federal government, uh, on abortion. What's important in that case is that there'll be fewer abortions. And I think a lot of the justices wanted that to occur. I don't think that's necessarily true of climate control. I think everybody wants more climate control. I think that was genuinely a fight about uh, the power of the EPA. Guns, complicated. The gun decision is widely misunderstood. There are really two gun decisions. The holding, which is perfectly reasonable. The holding says that New York state law gives too much power, too much discretion uh, to administrators to determine who can get guns and who can't for carry permits. Uh, it has such vague criteria that it can allow an administrator here to say this, an administrator there to say that. And the Supreme Court said, no, that's unconstitutional because there is a right to bear arms. And, and therefore, because there is a constitutional right, if you're going to take it away from people, you have to be clear, specific and objective. And New York State took them up on that and immediately passed a law that was clear, specific and objective. No guns in Yankee Stadium. Um, guns in Times Square? Maybe, maybe not. But that was uh, the decision itself, the holding itself, was a, a reasonable one. In the end, I disagree with it, but it was a reasonable one. But the language that led to it was very broad. And in fact, the Supreme Court was guilty of what it said New York was guilty of. It wrote, it wrote such vague language about what the Second Amendment actually means 
that it will leave it open to interpretations for many years to come. And so what's my overall assessment of the last Supreme Court term? Misunderstood. Misunderstood. Uh, clearly, um, um, the focus has been only on the uh, issue of um, what was decided rather than who gets to decide. And uh, we'll wait and see. Uh, the Supreme Court starts again in October, the first Monday in October. That's when they sit. There will be a new justice on the bench. I have every reason to believe she'll be a very good justice. She was a law clerk to my friend Steve Breyer, who I can now call Steve. He's an ordinary fellow now. Uh, no more robes, no more Supreme Court justice. Steve was always an ordinary fellow. He'd introduce himself to people who didn't know he was a justice, and he'd say, hi, my name is Stephen. What's yours? Um, and uh, I think that's because we both clerked for Justice Arthur Goldberg. And Justice Arthur Goldberg insisted on being called Mr. Justice. And I suspect that Steve um, reacted to that and said, hey, I'm Steve. I'm Stephen. Call me Stephen. So that's my assessment of the Supreme Court. Uh, misunderstood. Mixed results. A lot of wrong decisions. Some good decisions. The decision on criminal intent was a very good decision. I think the decision on allowing the federal government to prosecute non-Native Americans for killing or hurting Native Americans on our reservations, probably the right decision. The decisions involving administrative agencies should send a message to Congress, change the law, uh, give the administrative agencies specific delegated powers to do what they have to do. And I suspect that that will be done if Congress has the votes to uh, do it. I am a strong opponent of the Dobbs case. I think the Supreme Court never should have reached the issue of Roe versus Wade. It should simply have decided whether the Mississippi statute, which prohibits abortions after 15 weeks, except in certain circumstances, is constitutional. That's what Justice Roberts wants, the Chief Justice. He lost that and probably lost some of his authority over the Supreme Court. So mixed review, but... Um, the, for me, the most salient point is how badly misunderstood this court was, uh, this session of the court was. It was neither the best nor the worst. Um, it had some good decisions, some very bad decisions, and uh, life goes on. Uh, the pendulum swings widely. I think most Supreme Court terms have had bad decisions and good decisions, certainly in the 60 years, more now. God, it's more than 60 years. I'm going to be 84 in about seven weeks and so I've been watching Supreme Court decisions since, I think, 1954, since Brown versus Board. No, even earlier. I think during um, the McCarthy period. So I would say I've been watching Supreme Court decisions for 70 years. That's a long time, 70 years. So I think I have a little bit of experience in how to read them and how to analyze them. And I took wonderful courses in constitutional law. Not in college, by the way. I didn't want to be pre-law in college because I figure I'll learn my law in law school. In college, I took history and philosophy and science and all that. I wanted to be a well-rounded person. So um, I hope I've achieved that result. Um, I, I know some of you will disagree with that fundamentally. So let's turn now to some of the letters. Um, and I, I think the first one was actually relevant um, to what we're uh, talking about. Uh, which, of course, I can't find. Uh, the first one basically said that um, the first presidents of the United States were, uh, yeah, I got it here. Okay. 
I had asked the question, somebody had asked the question, Hamilton couldn't be president of the United States because he wasn't born in the United States. Is that neither was Washington, Jefferson, um, Adams, Madison, and I said the first number of them, and I don't remember exactly who was the first born in the United States, is of course, one of my brilliant letter writers uh, told me Martin Van Buren was the first president to be born following the start of the American Revolution. However, Zachary Taylor was the first president born after the American colonists' victory over the British. So uh, you can be president if you're uh, 200 and something years old, if you weren't born in the United States. But if you're less than 250 years old, you have to be have born in the United States. Okay, this is an interesting one. Professor Dershowitz, I already know that you do not believe in God, but knowing that you were attending Yeshiva U, I didn't attend Yeshiva U, I was turned down to Yeshiva University because I was a bandit, I was a bad kid in high school. I didn't go to Yeshiva University, I went to Yeshiva University High School, which is why they wouldn't let me into Yeshiva University. Did you ever believe in God? Well, let me be very clear, I don't believe in anything. I don't believe, I'm not a believer. I'm an agnostic about life. I'm an agnostic about evolution. I'm an agnostic about science. I'm an agnostic about Shakespeare. I'm an agnostic about uh, virtually anything you can think of because I don't believe in believing. I believe in exploring and finding out. Uh, I know on my deathbed um, I, I will still have doubts. Uh, I hope I will be sane enough to have doubts about everything. You know, as I'm dying, I'm going to wonder where am I going? There, there. Just the grave? I don't know. I don't know the answer to these questions. I, I don't believe in the Big Bang Theory. Um, how do you get something from nothing? Um, you know, it's so interesting. One of the most beautiful prayers in the Jewish religion, it's called Adon Olam. And it talks about two times where God existed and nobody else did. It starts with Beterim Kol, before everything, before everything. And then it says, the Acharei Kichlota Kol after everything. I can't understand that. Can you understand before everything? Can you understand after everything? What is there, uh, according to religion? God existed alone uh, before everything and after everything. Of course, I'm an agnostic. I'm an agnostic about everything. So it's not that I don't believe in God. Uh, it's possible. Uh, I don't believe that science explains uh, how we came to be. I'm very skeptical about uh, some of the origin stories. I think um, Superman makes a better case uh, for uh, Krypton exploding and sending this young boy, uh, the son of Jor-El, to Earth. Makes about as compelling a case as some of the fundamentalist scientists who believe they know everything and can solve everything. You just tell me how something can start from nothing. You just give me that answer, maybe I'll become less of a skeptic. You tell me about evolution, how evolution explains human reproduction. It doesn't, not to me. So uh, I'm a skeptic, and I'm always going to be a skeptic. And so um, my belief system, the only thing I believe in is skepticism. And I'm going to continue to believe in skepticism. Okay, there were a lot of questions about the Israeli bullet uh, or not bullet that killed the Palestinian. Many of you agreed with me that... Um, there was no real proof, and, and the uh, evidence is overwhelming that uh, the killing was an accidental result of an exchange of fire. Let me just explain to those of you who don't understand the law. Under American law, British law, and the law of most other countries, 
the Palestinians were legally to blame for the death of the Palestinian journalist. Why? The Israelis were legally trying to solve murder crimes, terrorism. They were legally in Jenin. The Palestinian terrorists shot at the Israelis illegally, provoking the Israelis to shoot back. In the exchange of fire, a person was killed. Nobody knows for sure whose bullet killed her. It doesn't matter. Even if the bullet killed her said, Israel, Israeli, kill Palestinians, Israeli, it didn't happen. But if it did, Palestinians would still be responsible. Because under the law, under decisions of numerous courts, when you have an illegal person starting an exchange of fire with legal people, the police, and a person is killed, the people illegally starting the exchange of fire are guilty, even if the bullet that killed that person comes from the gun of a policeman. So legally, there's absolutely no doubt that the Palestinians are responsible for her death. Morally, I leave it to you as I leave to you so many other issues. Look forward to seeing you again on Monday. In the meantime, if you miss me, I'm on Locals. You can see me on Locals, or you can read my new book that just came out called The Price of Principle. You can get it on Kindle. You can get it on Amazon. It's, it's inexpensive. It's a quick read. It's about 150, 160 pages. And uh, it deals with important issues that try to bring people together rather than separate them over partisan or ideological concerns. So please read The Price of Principle. See you next week. On holiday, there's nothing like doing nothing. As an Expedia member, you can save up to 30% when you add a hotel to your flight. So you can go out there with great ambition to do absolutely nothing for less. Expedia. Made to travel.